Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 696 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 4th of June 2023 as I record this back in Bath. In today's show, I'm talking to Marion Roach-Smith about writing memoir. Now, I've had Marion on the show several times over the last decade to talk about memoir, and I love talking to her. She is so wise and supportive. But this time, our discussion was a little different, as I have actually written a memoir. And it's funny because I looked back at the questions I asked uh, in previous episodes with Marion, and I've always been curious about writing memoir, but my questions this time are different because I have experience. Uh, Obviously, the memoir I've just I wrote earlier this year, Pilgrimage, Lessons Learned from Solo Walking, Three Ancient Ways. And given that memoir is so personal, I felt quite exposed talking about it in this interview, which to be honest is how memoir makes you feel. (laughs) It is a terrifying form of writing for sure, but perhaps that's what makes it even more difficult and therefore worthwhile as a creative project. And my appreciation of the genre is certainly greater since I have wrestled my own into the world. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, right, this is a biggie, especially if you have as big a backlist as I do. And I know some of you have bigger backlists. So this is a biggie. Amazon has changed their category system. So if you publish through Amazon KDP, you can now choose three categories within the category uh, area on the publishing tab and Remember, you also need to change your print prices by the 20th of June as they have put printing costs up. So this is a good chance to go in and update your backlist. And I wanted to talk about this specifically because you might think, oh, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, you know, we we got two choices before in the actual category thing and then we got into other categories through keywords. You could also email Amazon and request to be put into uh, 10 categories. That has all changed. You can now choose three categories that actually match the Amazon store categories. And I think this is for the primary store. So when you're publishing, you choose a primary store. So even though I'm in the UK, I have a primary store as amazon.com. So I do my primary pricing in US dollars, um, but you can pick the different things. But uh, Basically, you can leave the categories as is. So if you log into your KDP dashboard, have a look at a book, you'll still see there are two categories there. But what I have found is that the two categories might not necessarily be exactly what I want. As over the years, I have used that request, the email to get into other categories and all of that. So what is very clear is that they are changing the way this is working. Uh, once you go in, you, you click to edit and you pick your three categories. And it basically says uh, you can now choose three categories that match Amazon category, store categories. If you make changes, all your existing categories will be removed and this action cannot be undone. Your new categories will not go into effect until you submit and publish your book. So... 
if you want to just leave it as is, I presume you'll still be in many of the categories that you've already chosen. But once you go in and choose these three categories, then all the old ones will disappear. So I basically, um, I feel like there are reasons they're doing this. And the reason potentially (laughs) is that it's very hard to shop in the store these days because there are books and other products in categories that should not be in that category. Um, So for example, you'll find books in woodwork that might actually be a fiction book uh, featuring a carpenter. (laughs) So we all know this as browsers, that some of these categories are full of books that should not be there. So I feel like they're doing this for a very good reason. But uh, what this is going to mean is that there's going to be some shakeup. So if you have, for example, if you have category-based Amazon ads, or if you're uh, if you're doing well in a category that is now changing, then there's going to be some resetting. So I would expect some stormy weather (laughs) in this area. So I've given myself a bit of RSI because I knew I needed to do my Amazon print prices. And so I'm I'm just working through a a spreadsheet that I made with all my books and all my formats, and I have a lot of them. But what I have noticed that I wanted to tell you is that when you go in, again, there is a, it it says about the print price, it says, uh, if you can just download this report, and we will tell you which of your books needs to be updated. I was like, okay, great, I'll do that. So I downloaded it and it only had one book on. And what I've discovered going through this, and this is very important for you because this is a we run global businesses as authors. Essentially, that report only contains prices that that are negative on the primary store. So I only had one book because only one book was negative in US dollars. But when I've gone into every other single book and the large print books in particular, but also my paperbacks, um, none of the hardbacks because that's relatively new. So that pricing is fine. But my paperback and my large print, especially some of my older books, a lot of them were negative in the other currencies. So even though in US dollars, my profit might have gone from, let's say, $2 to 60 cents, in Australia, my profit might have gone from $3.50 to minus 20 or whatever, and it just shows as negative. So basically, and then I found that um, Japanese yen, Aussie dollar, Canadian dollar, some euro, um, and some UK pounds uh, were basically negative. So please don't cut it too fine, especially have if you have a big list like I do. Go into your KDP store and uh, update your prices for your print books and also have a look at the categories and whether you want to uh, update those. While I've been making these updates, uh, I've also ended up falling afoul of other things, other little rules they've put in that I hadn't noticed. So I would say that if you have been doing this a while, and I've been publishing on Amazon for over a decade, <laughs> what, well, however long, it's been a long time. So yeah, it's very interesting looking at this, uh, but it will settle down and as I said, I think the the crackdown on inappropriate categories is probably a good thing. I will link to, in the show notes, there's going to be a lot of links today. This is a big introduction. I have a lot of things to cover. But there is a Amazon help article on choosing categories, which I'll link to. And Dave Chesson at Kindlepreneur also has an updated article on how to choose categories. And I actually was using Publisher Rocket a lot in my process. And I still am because I'm, as I said, giving myself RSI 
sky and I'm only halfway through my spreadsheet. <laughs> but essentially, uh, Dave has a, uh, you can use Publisher Rocket to choose your categories or have a look at the best categories because you have to find them in the structure. Uh, I use Publisher Rocket. Uh, you can use my link, thecreativepen.com forward slash rocket, which is super useful links in the show notes to Dave's um, article and to Rocket. And talking of Dave at Kindlepreneur, we actually had coffee this year at Colorado Springs in in February it was and we geek out about AI possibilities for authors. Dave is a fantastic entrepreneur and he has now incorporated AI into the free sales description tool available at Kindlepreneur. It is based on OpenAI's ChatGPT engine. You can paste in your sales description and then ask the AI tool to rewrite it for you if you like the new version um, or you know you can also use the free formatting tool which I also use myself. So again links in the show notes or just look for the uh, book description generator on Kindlepreneur. So yeah that's super useful. I mean obviously if you use ChatGPT directly as I do a lot of us have been playing with the sales descriptions but if you don't have an account and you want to use this uh, free version then uh, check that out. So in personal news, and I will spin this into some AI news as well. So we flew back from New Zealand this week. Uh, it was, and I'm still jet lagged <laughs> to hell. I get such bad jet lag. And yes, I use melatonin. Uh, but yes, it was a personal family trip. It was not a holiday and it was a difficult trip for many reasons. Um, being in Auckland is also strange for both of us. So for context, I arrived in Auckland, New Zealand as a backpacker in late 2000. After the Sydney Olympics, basically, I went to Auckland. I was on my way back to the UK, but I met a scuba diving instructor up at the Poor Knights Islands. If you're a scuba diver, you'll probably know of those. And I married him soon after. Unsurprisingly, that marriage failed quite quickly. But I love New Zealand, so I stayed there. So in 2006, I met Jonathan, who is a Kiwi, uh, just before he moved to Australia and I followed him. So we lived in Brisbane, Australia, which is where I started writing properly until we moved back to the UK in 2011. So we have never lived in New Zealand together, which means we both have memories of places without each other, which means it's always quite weird. So neither of us have lived in New Zealand for 17 years. So Jonathan and I, but, you know, obviously we both lived there before then. Um, Jonathan and I were out walking one morning around the mangroves in Hobson Bay and up around Oraki Basin and along the walkway by the gully towards Meadowbank, if you know that area of Auckland. And we were reflecting on how New Zealand was not the same country we left back in 2006. How many things have changed? Obviously, in New Zealand, Aotearoa, but also in the world and with technology. So remember, the iPhone and the Kindle were both launched a year after we left in 2007. And they have obviously changed a lot. Um, social media wasn't around all of this. Of course, we have both changed. And we were at, in New Zealand for Jonathan's 50th, which is, of course, a landmark birthday. Now, many things are obviously much better and some things might be considered worse and people have different opinions on what is better and what is worse. But in general, we reflected that once you step out of the river, it continues without you. 
If you have lived in New Zealand since 2006, the changes will not seem as stark to you as it is to us. The river forks as soon as you step out and the water runs on without you. Now, of course, sometimes these changes are not your choice and sometimes they are. So the end of my first marriage was not my choice at the time, but it turned out to be the very best thing. In terms of divorce, I also think of Brexit. <laughs> I didn't vote for it, but I don't spend my time you know, wishing that it hadn't happened. I just get on with living in the best way I can in a world that forked after that change for this country. Leaving my corporate job to become an author entrepreneur was a choice, a fork in the road. Leaving New Zealand to follow Jonathan to Australia was a choice. And New Zealand will never be how it was in 2006. And we can never be the same too. You have to adjust to the current reality and move forward. You cannot go back to where the world forked and whether that's your choice or not. This is also how it is with the situation with AI, and you knew it was coming. The river moves on every day, and we cannot step backwards. Things will not return to the way they were. I've had emails recently and comments saying, please stop talking about AI. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> but I won't stop because it is the biggest fork in the river, and I want to help you navigate the change. Now, I'm not the only one talking about this for publishing anymore. Thad McElroy, an experienced publishing industry expert who's been on the show, uh, and, and his blog is called The Future of Publishing. He has an article in Publishers Weekly with the headline, AI is about to turn book publishing upside down. And up front, he makes it clear this is about the publishing business, not writing. His opening paragraph reads, The latest generation of AI is a game changer, not incremental change something gentle, something gradual. This AI changes everything. Fast. Scary fast. I believe that every function in trade book publishing today can be automated with the help of generative AI. And if this is true, then the trade book publishing industry as we know it will soon be obsolete. We will need to move on. So he goes into a lot of detail and there's no paywall on this article. So links in the show notes. Uh, I suggest you go and read it. He talks about the impact on editing, the slush pile, book production and cover design, distribution and marketing. And he is particularly excited about marketing, which again is something that I know many of you are playing with. GPTs can do a great job with competitive analysis and can paint a compelling real-time picture of what's happening in the market to the books that are siphoning off sales and to opportunities missed. It's also going to deliver on the till now thwarted promise of efficient discovery. Writers will pinpoint their ideal audience and readers will pinpoint their perfect next read. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I totally agree with that. I've talked a bit about how I've been using chat to uh, find other books. In fact, I had another cool chat uh, this week. I uh, was researching, researching, I was chatting with chat uh, about uh, another book and I was sort of asking, how would one get rid of a blood curse? <laughs> And if you've read some of my uh, most recent arcane novel, 
Tomb of Relics, you will understand what I mean. But essentially, I was like, how how do we how would we get rid of a blood curse? And I went down a really long chat, kept asking questions, kept asking questions, and eventually ended up with um, talking to the Vatican exorcist. And this is the book. Uh, the guy who wrote the book about this is there's a film out right now by Russell Crowe. Uh, but anyway, I asked uh, chat. I said, okay, so you are this Vatican exorcist. What is on your bookshelf? Give tell me the. 20 books that are on your bookshelf. And it gave me this list of 20 books that were on the Vatican Exorcist's bookshelf. And it was awesome. And I immediately went and bought a couple of them. And uh, yeah, so that was fun. So there's a little a little prompt for you. Uh, if you want a, a list of books, ask it to be some kind of role, and it will give you a book list. So that's just one example back to Thad. He also talks about educational publishing, the entertainment industry, and says AI is going to enable books to morph into additional revenue producing mediums in ways we've never seen before. And I absolutely agree with this. And in fact, I'm going to an event in the next few weeks about turning IP into the AR, VR, Start side of things, um, which generative AI will allow much more easily. Um, because yeah, if you own and control your IP, you can do whatever you want with it. And I'm also doing tons of pictures at the moment to start moving into doing book trailers again. So yeah, very exciting there. Uh, Thad also addresses the doomsayers. And goodness me, there's been a lot of dooming this week. <laughs> if you're a doom scroller, you're going to be uh, yeah, in trouble. Um, but anyway, Thad addresses the doomsayers. All this talk about the problems and perils of AI is just a distraction. It's a distraction from understanding the opportunity that AI brings to book publishing. This is not in the least to undermine the discussion, nor to in any way suggest the concerns are invalid or somehow unimportant. But you must fill two deep buckets when you think about AI. Promise and peril, and keep a deep moat between them. I totally agree with this. I absolutely am aware of the risks and problems and dangers. But if AI is like fire or electricity or the internet, which is some of the comparisons that have been made, it will have huge benefits and huge harms. But would you want to live without any of those? Fire, electricity or the internet? I have faith in the positive side of things and the will of most people to want to solve these problems. And there are lots of things happening around AI safety and alignment and all of this stuff. And I do stay up to date on all that news. I just don't bring it all to you. I mean, I I live in this data stream right now. I am well aware of all the issues. I just, I'm not a doomer. <laughs> I bring you the positive side. I'm trying to help you surf, not drown. So yes, there'll be legislation, there'll be new laws, but focusing on the negative will drive you nuts. Doom scrolling will kill your mental health, uh, as it did in the pandemic, and you will miss out on the benefits. Focus on using the tools, reading and listening to those who share positive AI news that the media seems to just, well, as ever, the media likes focusing on the bad stuff because it gets more clicks. That's just part of the human amygdala pays more attention to danger than positive news. So back down, back to Thad's article, one of his tips is write down the myriad other functions on the back of a napkin and ask yourself, what might a GPT do to help? 
So this is what we need to do. AI is not all or nothing. And this is why this is a totally false dichotomy uh, that authors and many other industries are making. It's like either you are pro-AI or anti-AI and you use AI tools or you don't. I mean, everyone is using AI tools. Um, it is a it's about specific tasks. So write down a list of everything you do in your day job, as well as your author work and even your personal life. What could you use AI tools to help you with uh, out of those things? It's not like I'm entirely replaced by AI. It's like, how do I use all these different tools? Thad closes his article as follows. We know how the world was transformed after the invention of the printing press. What will publishing look like after generative AI has been fully assimilated into our current workflows? What will reading look like when books are diminished by GPT's I-can-answer-that-question-right-now capabilities, when it can spin a tale that delights? I don't shudder to think about this. I couldn't be more excited. So, me too, Thad, me too. Uh, as you all know, I... This this stuff is more than exciting to me. However, I understand that it is a big change. And I mean, those of you who've been listening to me talk about AI since 2016, hopefully are more used to it. But it is a very strange time in the world. Some are describing ChatGPT and the emergence of large language models as a black swan event an unexpected and rare event that has far-reaching consequences that is basically unpredictable, so it can't entirely be prepared for. Nassim Nicholas Taleb has a book, Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable, which has some approaches uh, around this. He suggests embracing uncertainty and creating options that allow for flexibility and adaptation. This involves diversifying uh, around investments, if that's something you do, keeping options open, being prepared for multiple scenarios, having multiple streams of income, as I've said for many years, because some of them will be disrupted. Another of the key ideas in the book is non-linear dynamics. And uh, again, I've had been chatting with ChatGPT about the idea around non-linear dynamics because our brains find this difficult to think about. We think in linear ways, for example, a 50, 50th birthday, it's the year after a 49th birthday, and every year we get a year older and maybe we get a pay rise in a job that's 10% or we put out another book or every, this predictable rate of change. You can look ahead and be pretty certain things will turn out in a certain way. But non-linear dynamics are things that dramatically shift things in either a positive or a negative way. For example, TikTok has given some authors non-linear success. They were nobodies and they didn't even have to spend any money on advertising. They had viral success and maybe got a massive book deal off the back of that. And that happened with every social media platform, actually. The viral YouTubers or the earliest on the Kindle or the earliest into Facebook advertising, all these types of things. Now, there are some potential non-linear shifts coming around AI. A big one is going to be in the legalities around first the training data of the AI tools. Things like copyright law are going to be disrupted. Change is inevitable. And for the first time, it might be dramatically different by country. And this is very interesting to me. Um, I'm 
quite happy that the UK is pretty pro-AI. But this week, it was reported that Japan's government will not enforce copyrights on data used in AI training. So they're essentially saying it's fair use for training data. The policy allows AI to use any data, regardless of whether it is for non-profit or commercial purposes, whether it is an act other than reproduction, or whether it is content obtained from illegal sites or otherwise. So this means that Japan is essentially going all in on AI. And if you understand a lot about the demographics um, and the population demographics of Japan uh, and their economy, you can see how this is going. And in fact, if you have been following the news about the global uh, decline in population and the way things are changing demographically, then this may be a way that countries can increase productivity without uh, and support older populations. So, I mean, that in itself is a huge topic. (laughs) So I'm not going to go too much into that. Of course, there are still court cases in the US and the UK to identify what is fair use when it comes to training data. But the biggest companies in the world are continuing to roll out tools. And I literally, I can't tell you how many tools are rolled out every day. There are so many. Um, But these big companies have very big legal teams and they are just carrying on. So Microsoft Teams, which many of you in the corporate world use, is rolling out more tools, including Designer, which is powered by OpenAI's DALI image generation tool. So that's that's happened this week. Microsoft 365 is starting to roll out the generative writing tools within uh, the whole suite of Microsoft. And Google Docs will soon have Bard incorporated into it too. And, and Bard is um, Google's generative text. And I'm going to link to a tweet which has a video of this. Uh, Someone has beta usage and it essentially is write me a article on this and then it just generates it. So these tools are being rolled into the biggest writing tools in the world. So this is not going to stop. Also, Adobe Photoshop has uh, put out this generative fill tool, which the New York Times says lives up to the hype. And if you've seen any of these pictures, it's pretty cool. You can put in an image and then it, you can generate, generate the uh, around that image and a generative fill. It, 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 have a look at some of the videos. It's incredible. So Adobe Photoshop has put that in to um, their model and their tool. Now, those of those people who are still saying, oh, I would never use AI in cover design, let alone writing. Well, I can't see how any cover designer who uses Photoshop is not looking at this stuff. Adobe's model is trained on copyrighted material, so I can't even see any problem. So have a look. Also, I I wanted to just mention one thing around medical advances, because again, the reporting on the positive stuff is just hardly, well, it's just drowned out by the negativity. But in terms of medical advances, this week the BBC reported a new superbug killing antibiotic was discovered by AI. And if you know anything about this, um, antibiotics in hospitals and all of this have have been a nightmare. Um, And you know, more than a million people a year are estimated to die from infections that resist treatment with antibiotics. So this is a really big deal. And researchers say that AI can give us the power to massively accelerate the discovery of new drugs. And if you've followed the AlphaFold by DeepMind, Google's DeepMind, you will know more about that. But the point is, this is a publishing 
publishing, this is an author podcast for indie authors. I cannot cover the wide scope of what is happening in the world of AI, but um, there's so much happening that is beyond what the mass media says. So please have a look for evidence of positivity (laughs) if you're worried. But coming back to my metaphor, the river keeps moving on regardless whether or not you are swimming in it. So at the moment, I know a lot of people are kind of standing on the bank uh, watching all of this happen. Um, personally, I'm, I think I'm now in a kayak. I think I'm not even swimming. I think I'm in a kayak now and I will soon be putting up my sail um, and I will be moving even faster. But of course, Some people are also clinging to the bank. They're trying to stop the river from moving. They're trying to stop time, keep things as they were. Uh, Why can't things just be as they were back in the 90s when authors got multi-six-figure deals and everything was amazing and there was no Amazon and there was no any of this stuff? Well, not happening. And the same with indie authors. Remember, I've now been an indie author for 15 years. This is not a new industry anymore. Thus, we will be disrupted and thus the disruption is starting to happen. And more changes coming. So back to Amazon. VentureBeat reported this week that job listings at Amazon, and there's a new job listing at Amazon, describing a new search functionality for the Amazon store that would feature a chat interface powered by a technology similar to ChatGPT, presumably one of, uh, I think Amazon's model is called uh, Titan. So, I mean, they have these models and they're being rolled out at the moment. I mentioned that over a month ago. But the job posting suggests that Amazon is looking for engineers who could help create an interactive conversational experience that would enable customers to ask product questions, compare products, receive personalised suggestions and more. The postings also compare the project to a once-in-a-generation transformation for search akin to how the Mosaic browser revolutionised the internet in the 1990s. So very clear that Amazon, of course, is going to disrupt itself. And it needs to. I mean, there's a there's a Charlie Rose interview with Jeff Bezos from over a decade ago. And Jeff Bezos said, you know, Amazon will be disrupted. And it's nice to see that perhaps they will disrupt themselves. And again, I really hope this means book discovery will be based on the content of the whole book. When we upload our books to Amazon, they clearly have the entire content of the book. And we sign by uploading your book, you use the terms and service. So I'm not sure at the moment whether this is included. I should probably go and read whatever the latest thing is. But of course, if my books can be surfaced due to the content being analysed, then I'm going to be up for that. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm very interested in where this might go. But do not expect things to say the same. So if you want to start playing with these things, the other thing that happened is the ChatGPT official app has launched in a lot of countries. Um, I have it and I've been trying to use it and I use it quite differently on my phone than I use it on my desktop. Make sure you download the official one uh, because there are tons of others that are just skins on the same model. So uh, I've been chatting, as I said, about all kinds of things. I had that in-depth discussion about the Black Swan book and the potential non-linear effects of AI. I've been talking about 
chatting about health goals for turning 50 in just under two years. Uh, I've also been talking about micronutrients, how to cook spinach to make it more delicious. Plus, I've been doing some life coaching. I said, please act as a career life coach specialising in Clefton strengths for creative people. I gave it my top strengths and said, uh, you know, told it a bit about my business and then said, how can I lean into my strengths to build a more successful career? Now, the whole point is, or the whole point of chat is that you go beyond the first question. You kind of go back and forwards and you go deeper and deeper. And eventually we got into how I can use my strengths in financial investing. And we, uh, I then used the black swan idea of the non-linear potential impacts of things like climate change, energy, blockchain, demographic shifts and more to talk about financial investments and my business. It it was fascinating. I mean, really, I mean, these are in-depth conversations that go deeper and deeper. Uh, it is a tool for you to explore more of what you're interested in. It is not Google. It is not a uh, how, you know, it's not Google. Please don't use it like Google. And it's not necessarily factually true at the moment. So check anything you ask around specific things. If you'd like more prompts and demos on how I'm using various tools, ChatGPT, MidJourney, PseudoWrite and more, I have added some more slots for my webinars at the end of June and early July 2023. You can find tickets at thecreativepen.com forward slash live, L-I-V-E, thecreativepen.com forward slash live. Uh, I want to keep the group's manageable size so I can take questions. So I'm basically delivering the same material several times. I will record the sessions and ticket holders will get the recording but I will not sell the recordings separately um, or as a course because these are going to change over time and I'll probably be running these every few months or something as things change. So that is thecreativepen.com forward slash live. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. This particular one on YouTube I liked, Big Philly said, Joanna, you've consistently ran the best indie podcast for years. Thank you very much. And then I disagree with your enthusiasm about AI, but I'm open-minded. I appreciate the hard work you put into the show. <laughs> and I was I appreciate that comment so much because I've also had many um, comments that say I disagree with you and I will never listen to you again and of course you're allowed to disagree with the aspects of what I talk about <laughs> but hopefully you find some benefit in some aspect of the show so I really appreciated that comment um, we are we are large we contain multitudes as uh, what Walt Whitman said um Lindy Ann said, thank you for the wonderful podcast with John Fox. I was so inspired. I listened to it again and took notes along the way. Uh, I've ordered the book and will use it to apply to eight chapters I have written and may rewrite in an Australian historical novel. That is fantastic. And yes, as ever, podcasts sell books. And finally, Karen said on the Stephen Marsh chat about AI. One of your best episodes on the topic up till now. Your talk with Stephen was such a relief from a certain unease I wasn't really aware that was burdening me. Thank you, Karen. Remember, you can tweet me at the creative pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Uh, you can also send me pictures of graveyards. I always appreciate those. Email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Uh, leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation.
So today's show is sponsored by draft to digital and I'll play a word from Kevin Tumlinson in a minute. And on a personal note, I use draft to digital to publish my ebooks to Nook and library services, uh, although you can also use them for all your ebook publishing. I also use them for my co-written book, The Relaxed Author with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, as draft to digital do automatic payment splitting, which is a blessing if you co-write. They also now have a print option and the team are super helpful and friendly. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time as ever is sponsored by my patrons. And I'm especially grateful to those patrons who've supported the show for years and months. And thank you to new and returning patrons this week, Jason Taylor, Nikki Weber and Julie Frusher. If you support the show on Patreon, you'll get my extra monthly Q&A for patrons only, and I will be doing that in the next couple of weeks. It is around 45 minutes of audio where I answer your questions about writing craft, publishing, book marketing, making money, writing, and of course, AI and futurist stuff. Uh, You can support the show with just a few dollars or euros or pounds or whatever. Support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from draft to digital and then we'll get on with the interview. Hi, this is Kevin Tomlinson with draft to digital ebooks are amazing, but there's just something about having your book in print, the crack of the spine, the weight and feel, the smell. Ah, everybody loves a good paperback and that's why we built D to D print. It's the easiest way to get your book from pixel to print with just a couple of clicks. We take care of you with free layout templates and formatting, and we can convert your ebook cover into a full wraparound print cover automatically. And if you run into trouble, we're just an email away with all the author support you've come to know and love. Come check out D2D Print and all the cool tools we've built for you. Find more at d2d.tips slash creative pen. That's pen with two N's. Marion Roach-Smith is an author, memoir coach, and teacher of memoir writing. She has online courses on writing memoir and hosts the QWERTY podcast about memoir. Her books include The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing and life. So welcome back to the show, Marion. It's a joy to be here, particularly to talk about your fabulous memoir. So I just want to get that in real fast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And you were last on the show and we were talking about memoir in July 2020. And a lot has changed since then. So for those who don't know you, tell us a bit more about you and your writing background and why you are so passionate about memoir as a genre. Well, I've learned that memoir is the single greatest portal to self-discovery. And I've learned that in my own career. I was a young New York Times employee when my mother got sick with a disease that no one understood. It's now understood to be Alzheimer's disease. And I wrote about it extensively. And after that, in the last in the 40 years of my career since then, I've written a lot of pieces of memoir, all of which allow me to explore things that I didn't actually understand when I sat down to write about them. And I do understand them a bit better now. And I genuinely have now believe having worked with people for almost 30 years on their memoir writing that everybody benefits from it. So I, in COVID, have had the great opportunity to meet a lot more people because a lot more people decided to write books, op-eds, essays, long-form essays, and even just blog posts in, in, in COVID and do a lot of exploration. And what I've witnessed 
has been really informative. So that I think this introspection, this global introspection that we are plunged into has resulted in a lot of good copy. Yes, it's been tragic. Absolutely. But your book is an example of the time taken after the plunge to see what we really think. And I think that that is is the best up-to-date I can give you is that there's good memoir out there. There's lots of it. I'm teaching a lot of it. I did record all of my classes during COVID so people could have them on demand. That's probably my news. But mostly my news is that I think that people have spent the time thinking and I'm deeply grateful for it. Yes, I did want to ask you about the pandemic. I mean, I wrote mine in the pandemic, but it did feel like maybe that chance to pause. And also for me, it's always this idea of memento mori, remember you will die. And is that a common thing with memoir, not just with the pandemic, but in general, is it sort of confronting our mortality is is why we almost want to write these things. I mean, with you, you mentioned with your mum, I mean, that was a mortality moment facing Alzheimer's. I mean, is it this fear of death or thoughts about death that makes a lot of people write? Well, as you know, there's nothing like a deadline, Joanna. And what <laughs> and we all need them. I do best literally when the thing is due in 2 hours, I can whip it out better than if you give me 2 weeks. So, what COVID brought very clear to all of us is that we're all on a deadline. And I think that whether it was conscious or unconscious, the memento mori idea is positively motivating. I need to get this out. And that's what I saw was an astonishing amount of input worldwide from people. And I did hear from people all over the world. And this is one of the few things we've shared is the global recognition that we're all on a deadline. I'll tell you one of the things that I have heard from people and that I felt myself is, well, but what does it matter when we sit down to write these things? Will anyone care? You know, there's all this stuff going on in the world. Should I write this? How do we get over that sense? So, we share our humanity when we write memoir because this is not autobiography. This is not the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday version of your life, which really very few people should have to be exposed to. I don't want I don't want to read your date book. I want you to do the curation from your life to show me your transcendent change. Just the way you do in pilgrimage in your beautiful new memoir, you show us what's at stake at the beginning, that you're discontent, that you've got a real issue that you would like to walk through. And we get to see that transcendent change as you generously pluck for us from your total experience, just those scenes that we need to see and to witness transcendent change. We're not reading your book because of what you did, that albeit three remarkable pilgrimages. We're reading your book with what you for what you did with it. And that's what the humanity piece of memoir does so beautifully. It allows us to witness your transcendent change. Always a memoir writer should keep this in mind. We are reading your book for our own feeding of our own ideas of transcendent change. And your book gives us the sense that we can change, that we can evolve, that we can have a portal, walk through it, and come out with a new consideration of life. So people do care, written well, like yours is. We change reading it. And you talk about that transcendent change. And this is definitely something that I was struggling with the shape of the book in terms of I had loads of material 
I didn't know what it was going to be. So I had the notes from my walks. I thought maybe it was some travel logs or some guidebooks. And then I had these essays about my travels. And it was, I thought this sort of bubbling up from the bottom up is what I was thinking, that somehow it would turn into something. But as you say, around the change, I didn't know that it might even be a memoir until I realised my own personal change from the beginning to the end of the process. So give us some more examples of what that transcendent change might be or because I mean transcendent change seems life-changing or something massive (laughs) but it might be smaller things too mightn't it so what are some things that people might find in their own lives to shape a memoir around it's a great question because it doesn't have to be a bummer it doesn't have to be misery based and it doesn't have to be huge it can be it can be an absolutely huge story set in a war where you have some effect on that. But more often than not, it's the small stuff of life that changes us. The recognition that I am going too fast and that if I don't learn to meditate, if I don't learn to bring a little Zen here, I am going to be that person who is trying every day to demand from others what they simply cannot give to me. And so that small change, and if you've ever witnessed a type A person trying to learn to meditate, it's it's torturous, right? Because what do they do? They buy all the meditation apps and where do they listen to them? In their car while they're driving. It's like, no, that's not going to work. And it makes for an amusing, but also universal peace. So you can learn to love a dog. You can learn to love a garden that it came with the house that you just bought. I always say to people, if you write from one of your areas of expertise at a time, you will never run out of things to write. You will have a writing life. If you say to yourself, what do I know after what I've been through with the caregiving of my mother? What do I know after raising 12 dogs? What do I know after going on three pilgrimages? What do I know after living in this world with a sick child? And write, those are each separate pieces. They're either blog posts, essays, op-eds, long-form essays, or books. People can write eight, 10 book-length memoir in this lifetime if they write from one area of their expertise at a time and stop writing that autobiography that begins with their great-great-grandfather and ends with what they had for lunch today, which is a book you're never going to finish because there's always lunch tomorrow and no one's ever going to read. So everything is memoir. If you look at it from one area of your expertise at a time, how did you learn to accept your illness? How did you learn to love that dog that your sister insists you must care for while she goes off in the army and fights, but you know, you don't want that dog. And we know that your sister knows that you need that dog more than you need anything. Small stuff, areas of expertise, you will never run out of things to write. Yeah, I love that. And and yet this is also the problem with me. I had like a hundred thousand words and I do wonder. <laughs> <laughs> and the final book is I think less than 30. I mean, it's crazy. And so there was a heck of a lot of writing that did not go in this book and may never go anywhere. So is that how it works for most people? Or what are the pieces that will go into this? Is it just a case of sitting down and it, writing it end to end and I just did it wrong? Or how, how do people come at a memoir? <laughs> You did it absolutely right because you did curate so that the book moves. As soon as a reader knows something, they don't need to be told it again. When In an alcohol is the memoir. We don't need 19 scenes in act one that show us that you have a drinking problem. Once you've established that with the reader, we now want to know what the drinking problem 
its effects are. Do you make bad decisions? If you make bad decisions, do they include people you hang out with? Like you can take it a few more steps, but I just don't need to see 19 scenes of you in a different bars. And you think, oh no, but they're different bars. No, the message is the same to the reader. I have a drinking problem. Now we need to see what choices you make after that. And then we need to get out of act one because now we want to know if you can sober up, right? So you did beautifully curating simply stating for us in your act one, what the issue is, what the problem is. You use this beautiful German word, which I'll probably mispronounce, but for of the longing for, for far off places. How do you pronounce that by the way, jo- Joanna? Yeah. I mean, almost Fernweh. Fernweh. Yeah. And so you've got that combined with this collective grief that we've got, right? This global grief And you state definitively that you couldn't control the pandemic, but you could walk out the door with your backpack, right? That was very good selection amid probably other things that are going on in your life, which you said, well, we don't need all of those, right? So you make this curated attempt. And so you did do this perfectly. A hundred thousand words makes perfect sense to me. I frequently say to people when I'm teaching memoir writing, first, you have to pack a trunk, the kind of trunk you might take to camp for two months. And then we're going to turn that trunk into an overnight bag. But I have to see the trunk to be able to select which sweaters are going to go with you and which are not. So mostly people write big and then we sculpt it down after that. I call it the vomit draft, that first draft, that hundred thousand <laughs> word behemoth. And you know, you should treat it like a vomit draft. I mean, it's going to be stinky and it's going to have everything in it that you threw up on this one topic. Then we get it down to the overnight bag, right? And you did that exactly right. I didn't feel there was repetition. I felt as soon as I knew something, you moved on. And that's exactly your assignment as a memoir writer. Yeah, that, that's it's so interesting though, because, and I mean, this comes down to the editing process versus the writing process, because that introduction and the sort of epilogue, mm-hmm. they're the last things that I really wrote or I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote until I did have a clear opening and closing to the arc of the character, which was me. But coming back to how other people can write their memoir, I mean, you've been giving us questions. Mm -hmm. So is it a case of just starting, I mean, you mentioned essays and things. So is it that people start writing little essays, let's say, or little journal pieces on things they're thinking about? Or is it that they almost give themselves questions around various aspects? Or, for example, with your mother, is it journaling while someone is going through suffering and then looking at that later? Like, how are people writing like that main meat of what we what turns into the trunk? Well, those are a couple of great questions that allow me to really reflect on what we're doing here. So first of all, your comment about how you wrote the intro and epilogue last, that is some of the best advice you can give to memoir writers. If you write your introduction first, you're going to be forced to write the book to that. And you don't even know what you know until you write that big hundred thousand word vomit draft. You think you're writing a book about mercy and suddenly you're writing a book that's all about the particulate matter that goes into mercy. That's a very different thing. And so you want to wait till you've written a first draft to ever write your introduction and your epilogue. I just wanted to say that you did that exactly right. And in terms of starting out, in terms of, are you going for the snippets that you have in your journal or are you answering big questions? I would say that memoir is always based on a question. Can I sober up? 
Can I live in this world the way it is? Can I completely and absolutely love this child who is so ill and who is going to require my time in a massive way? How do I, how am I going to navigate with love and care through this experience? So frequently it begins with a question. Sometimes it, however, begins with keeping a journal on something. You know, you just got a garden journal or a knitting journal or a journal of a caregiving experience. And you find that you really are quite interested in the process of your own change. And so you go back and you look at those journal entries and maybe you do start with a personal essay. I genuinely believe that testing your material on the public is a great idea. Op-eds, opinion pieces that appear in your in the newspaper are great ways to attract the attention of an editor or an agent, but they're also great ways to hone your argument. And every piece of memoir is an argument. And what I mean by that, I don't mean argumentative. I mean, it is a state for the record, stating for the record what I know after what I've been through, what you're willing to share with someone. So frequently a piece will start with a recognition that I think that dogs do things for people that people can't do for themselves. Oh, what an interesting place to write from. Or that closure is a myth. Or that... Grief is a process that must be gone through slowly in order to go through it. If you go, if you rush it, you're going to stay in it forever. I think I know that. And so you can start with a question. You can start with a conclusion. You can start short with an op-ed or an essay. You can call from your journals, but you have the ability to enter this process anywhere along the line. A small piece is a perfect place to start. As long as you don't start with that intro or epilogue, because that will confine your work to something that you don't even, that'll curtail your discovery. And there's lots of discovery in memoir. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting, you mentioned testing ideas there. And I started my second podcast, Books and Travel, in 2019, just before the pandemic. But it gave me a chance to do solo episodes around reflecting on various travels. And they were essentially sort of mini essays about various places I've traveled and the effects of those travels. And so I had originally thought that, in fact, talking about titles, the original title was Untethered. And it was about finding a home after traveling around the world. But then I wrote and did these solo episodes and it just didn't hang together. And this idea of how it hangs together, the structure of a memoir, I mean, pilgrimage is both a journey, a sort of A to B journey, the moving across the world, but it's also an emotional journey. But there are other memoirs that are these sorts of essays within a theme. So what are your thoughts on trying to decide what the structure of a memoir should be and finding kind of models in that way. And then we'll come back to titles. Sure. So the structure of a memoir should always be taking an idea from here to there, from when you could not do something to when you could, from when you did not know something to when you did, from when you had to shed something to when you shed it and how life got better. Everyone takes on too much. Just go from here to there. And so that's your basic structure. And those are your bookends from when I didn't know something to when I did, right? And so what you want to do is to consider how would I best portray my here to there via my argument? Would it work to do it in shards, little 
tiny half a page each pieces. They're not essays. They're really like patches. And because I'm having a very disjointed experience with this problem, those might work. In other words, that might support the argument. These are just little ideas that I have about this very big problem I have. Oh, so that structure might really support the argument. Essays sometimes support the argument best. And a series of essays that still run from here to there, from when I, you know, from what's at stake, act one, to what I tried, act two, to what worked, act three is the way I think of the three acts. And the essay structure can work very well because they are self-contained and they allow the reader to sort of pop a lozenge in their mouth and let it melt and then pop another one in. That sometimes works for some arguments. But in your case, and going from this what's at stake all the way through works beautifully with the narrative, the way you did it, combining the workbook with it, giving us a sense that we're learning along the way, including the references that you do. It's very well annotated as it should be because you're backing it up with a lot of material about the places you've been. So structure should be something that furthers the argument. What best furthers the argument? So, you know, little shards to essays, to narrative length chapters that work with an included with a workbook. It makes sense the way you structured it. And as to the title, I get it why you started with Untethered, but you worked to to pilgrimage. Lessons learned from solo walking three ancient ways tells us, the reader, the potential buyer, that there is going to be this exploration of pilgrimage, that there are lessons that are learned, that you did this alone, that you're a woman, and that there's an ancient aspect to it. The delivery on this title is excellent. And the title itself does a great job of pulling the reader in. There's something there for everyone. So I think that you did a terrific job of moving from untethered, which you present in act one as your problem, right? You are mm. untethered. Yeah. Instead of delivering on the, um, we get it. You you did You needed to do something in this pilgrimage. Nobody goes on a pilgrimage lightly, I don't think. So the untethered gets in there, but it just isn't stated in the title. Yeah. And I mean, let's talk more about titles because it was really hard. I mean, originally it was untethered travels in search of a home, which was included a lot more about, for example, my mum taking us to Africa and moving to Australia and New Zealand. And none of that made it in to the final book. And I mean, like you said, it actually does start with being untethered and finding a home by the end. So the whole thing is already there. But I did go with, because I've been writing 15 years now, I did think about keywords when I was doing my title. But this is obviously difficult, especially if people are writing a memoir. It's a very emotional topic. So what are your recommendations around deciding on a title and combining the keywords with both the emotional side of things for people listening? I love that you brought up keywords because we are selling a product and people get so emotional. They say, oh, my, my publisher is trading it like a, like a widget. Well, yeah, they are because they want to sell it. And so we need to have some recognition of that. But when we're choosing our title, it's best to think about not being pretentious, but being and not being too literary and not trying to communicate too much over the heads of the person who's in the bookstore or online. And instead, think about what are they looking for? 
Not that you want to just always cater to your reader, but you want to consider your reader. And this title allows us to know what the promise of the book is, which is deeply important. I remember in my first book, I was 26 years old. I was with the at the time, the greatest editor in New York. I was so lucky. And I actually fought with her to put a ridiculous title on my first book. I wanted a quote from Emily Dickinson because I loved Emily Dickinson. And I wanted to call the book The Hour of Lead. Now, let's just be honest. That is a <laughs> terrible idea. Like, what of God is that about? You know, with some really esoteric subtitle, because I wanted to be taken seriously. Well, that's not my publisher's problem. <laughs> that's my problem, right? So don't try to solve your problems and become, quote, legit with the title. Instead, what does the book cover? What does the book do? And what is the promise in the subtitle of the return on investment for the reader if we read this? I'm going to learn your lessons you learned solo walking three ancient ways. And I'm also going to get this great exploration of what pilgrimage really is. And I must tell you, I, I found myself deeply considering the idea of pilgrimage, even from my own armchair and the transcendent change that happens. So I think that the title needs to be considered, but you absolutely don't go over the heads of your reader. It is super difficult. So talking about one of the emotional sides of the process is fear. I mean, I had so much fear in this process, mainly fear of judgment, which I always struggle with about what people might think of me because of what I've written. There's some mental health issues. And I guess I was just scared what people would think of me and some things that I haven't shared on this show, even though I podcasted throughout the last few years. So that's my big fear, fear of judgment. But what kinds of fears do people face when writing memoir? What are your tips for overcoming that? Well, memoir has consequences. And the consequences may be as simple as that you did not include your sister. And depending on your sister, she might not take that well. But if the story is about some period of, it covers some period of time, and it's about a transcendent change that isn't, in fact, part of your story with her, then she doesn't need to be in the book gratuitously. So one of the first consequences is limiting the scope of a story. You may leave out your husband. You may leave out your parents. You may leave out your kids. And so not everybody's going to like that. And that does obviously touch into judgment. There can be consequences if you write about something that can be potentially litigious or actionable. In other words, in abuse memoir, we have lots of, of experience with people who change their name, change the name of the people. I always recommend that you don't just change the names, but you find a more literary way. Give the people diagnoses, you know, maybe call the person the abuser, call the, your mother the complicit one, call your father the deaf who didn't hear your pleas. Think about ways to do this. It, and I don't give legal advice ever, but at least get the story on the page before you change your mind about writing it and change the names to something that's a bit more literary. But there's all this fear, right? This fear of judgment and that that I think keeps a lot of people from writing. So what I always say to them is there's so many reasons not to write. There's kids and houses and jobs and dogs that need to go to the vet. Let's take fear off the table and let's do that 
by getting involved with maybe one or, or a small group of people who are invested in your success. In other words, in a writing group, with a writing coach, with a developmental editor, with a one-on-one person, so that you can just not tell anybody else that you're doing it, not tell the family that you're doing it, get the job done and let's see what you've got. Then when you're going to take it to market, there will be fear of judgment. You are very transparent here. You talked about your failed first marriage. You talked about your mental health. You didn't tell us everything, but we don't need everything. And what you did instead of us judging you was you allowed us to be with you. You allowed the kind of transparency that makes us feel that we're sitting together next to each other, having a talk, as opposed to you preaching to us, which I cannot tolerate, (laughs) or being really dogmatic, which I cannot tolerate in a narrator. So the fear, we should try to take it off the table by either through several devices, certainly changing the names if you need to do that, certainly writing to only a very small audience that accepts and is invested in your success. And then the fear of publication and the fear of rejection is going to be there. You are, after all, taking something to the market. Here's the deal. You need to bring the best possible writing to this because this is a book and it will be judged by its writing. So if you bring the best possible writing, you tell the truth, you make a product that you can live with and stand by, you are doing what writers do every day, which is contributing to a conversation that we all need to have. So maybe you can raise your sights knowing that you're doing this good thing and contributing to some major conversation and it'll blow past some of that fear. Yeah, because I guess there's the fear of writing itself, but even when it's just you on your own and people who have deep trauma to get through, that, that there is fear of just bringing that even to the page versus the fear of putting it out in the world when other people will see it and potentially read it. Although perhaps not as many people read these things as we would kind of like as well. (laughs) Well, the deep trauma thing is a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up because what are we asking a memoir writer to do when we ask her to go and write about a past trauma? Are we asking her to reanimate it? Are we asking her to relive it? Are we asking her to stand coolly back from it and have a look from some distance. And every memoir writer will answer that question differently. I've asked every memoir writer that I've interviewed on my podcast that question, and they all have different answers for it. But where I believe my own answer to that question is I'm not asking you to relive it. If it is a trauma you probably should have some kind of counseling while you're writing it because any number of things could come up. But what we're looking from you to do is to tell us the truth and to show us the transcendent change. So right in there is a key to how to get this done. You get to choose how this story goes from here. And that is not something that maybe you got to choose before if you were the victim of some trauma. Maybe it's been told to you. Maybe it's been labeled in a certain way. Now you get to get your hands on your own story. And I hope that the invitation of that allows people to enter it. I'm not saying you get to make up an ending, but you do now get to choose when this thing is over. And that's a very powerful thing. I've noticed it with a lot of Me Too memoir that I've handled is that people get their voice back. One of the things that's taken when someone violates the territory of your body is your voice. And so to get your voice back, I have been happily reduced to tears constantly over the last five, six years editing Me Too memoir, watching people get their voices back. 
So my invitation to everyone is use your voice. You'll be astonished what it'll do for your life. Yeah, it is a very powerful process to to write this and understand. Like you mentioned at the beginning, it's a portal to self-discovery. But one of the big questions is really when is a memoir finished in terms of when is the book finished? In terms of when I felt it, I understood what it was when I returned from my Camino de Santiago and I realized that I'd come home and it was like I'd been through the character arc, but it was only once I'd been through the character arc that I realized it and then I could write the memoir. So is that the feeling that everybody gets or how do you know <laughs> when the book is finished? <laughs> I think there's a variety of feelings that people get. And some people, you know, I, when I was in my first, when I wrote my first book, there used to be these things called safe deposit boxes that you had at banks where you kept your valuables locked up. And I used to go down, this is true, to the bank every day with my pages and put them in the safe deposit box, lest, you know, my wow. apartment building should burn down. But it was the day that I got to carry them all home when I was finished. This carrying, I'll never forget walking up Columbus Avenue in Manhattan, carrying my whatever it was, first draft, 325 pages, and holding it to my heart, right? And knowing that I had something that nothing in this earth has ever quite come close to that first, first feeling. But when is a memoir finished? Well, a memoir is finished when you've proved your argument. And this is a really important thing to remember. Many, many, many memoir will be finished. 15 years ago, in terms of the chronology of your own life, it'll be done when you did experience that transcendent change and you can show us the proof of that. Yours, you wrote right on the heels of an experience, almost writing it in real time, but it's still done when you've proved your argument. It's still done when you've discovered what you've discovered about home. It's done. And so you can move on to your next book. So it's done when you've proved your argument. Yeah. And you mentioned there the length, although I was just imagining you walking along the street thinking, oh my goodness, don't get mugged or fall over right. or drop it. Or I mean, that just seems crazy now. Like everyone back up your work in multiple places, email it right. to yourself. Like that's just, that's terrifying. But yes, in terms of just the size, because your that book that you mentioned, that's a lot bigger. And I did notice with mine, I mean, I'm quite happy with the length, but there was a point where I thought this should be longer, like this should have more in. So is there a a length that people should be aiming for? So it used to be that the rule was don't even think of handing something into an American publisher and on, on anything under 75,000 words. And happily, that's no longer the case. There are still old time editors who like to have the heft of a book. But what I've seen, especially in this generation of younger writers, is much shorter copy. I think it's the Twitter influence. I think it's a lot of the social media influence. And I think that the people who write miniatures in America, we have people like Lydia Davis and people like Abigail Thomas, who have written books that have very short, sometimes half a page is a chapter. And so there's the exploration of that that's really warranted. So I encourage people not to set a word count in their own minds and hearts. That doesn't mean that you're not going to run into an agent or an editor along the way who says, oh, it's too short. I don't feel that your book was too short. I felt that your book was digestible and it happened right in the time frame it should happen. It was the right length. But you really, really, really want to, again, prove your argument. 
and see what form fits that argument best. It might be shards, it might be short chapters, it might be long narrative chapters, but I worry less about word count these days than I used to. Well, you've mentioned editors and publishers a number of times. And I I mean, I'm an independent author, so I was always going to go the indie route for this. I know, but I know memoir writers who have traditionally published and who have chosen to go indie because of the control aspect of such a personal project. So what are the pros and cons of choosing a publishing direction for a, a memoir? I'm so glad you brought that up because yes, of course, you've always been Indian. I've always just so admired that about you and you do a great job with it. And I think this is the greatest time in the history of writing for writers because there are choices. There's independent publishing, which we no longer call self-publishing. Thank goodness. (laughs) It is independent publishing, meaning you have total control. You can design the cover. You can talk about, you can make typeface decisions. I mean, I've seen brilliant typeface things these days, you know, um, typography, but also how the layout appears on the page, including a recipe or including a poem or including a picture. You have so much more control over what the book looks like. You also have control over how the book is distributed, where it's distributed. And I think for those people who are entrepreneurial, this is the absolute way to go. There's hybrid publishing, which is a mashup between the two where you put some money into it and you also get the benefit of the distributor of the publisher. We have a bunch of them now. Well, we have more than a bunch. We have so many of them proliferating in the United States. And then there's traditional publishing. In the US, that means only the four, the big four, as they're referred to, that everybody knows. There's advantages and disadvantages. You have to keep in mind that with traditional publishing, the liability is entirely on the publisher. So they want their money's worth. If they gave you an advance, if they're going to incur the entire cost, they're also going to extract the most amount of money per book until you ever see any money, if you do, in royalties. In hybrid, you get royalties faster. And in indie publishing, you're in control of the money. So depending on what kind of person you are, I think that you've got options. The only thing is I always say to people is do not think because you're going with quote traditional publishing that you're going to get a big advertising and tour budget. That Those days are long over from almost like 99% of the writers. You're still going to have to do the promo yourself and meaning writing those advanced, those letters out to public, to magazine publishers or online places that you can publish. You're going to do all that work yourself. You are. And so if you're going to do it anyway, why not indie publishing, right? So I think this is a great choice. It depends on the person. Mm. And I mean, if people do want a traditional publisher, I mean, <laughs> the sort of famous one in my head is Wild by Cheryl Stray, which sold a gazillion, or I guess Eat, Pray, Love was a, another sort of famous one that got made into a movie. And so people think, oh, if I just get a publisher, then that's what will happen to me. But it, I mean, are publishers now even looking for memoir, it just seems, unless you're famous that already, that it's difficult in that way. Yeah, I don't, I, I still see lots of book sales. I've got 70 something books on my shelf of people that have worked with me who have published and they've published in these various realms, indie, hybrid, and traditional. So I know it's possible. I just had on the podcast, somebody who, who actually lives in the UK, it was her first memoir and she sold it. And she sold it big. She sold it to a big publisher and got a big, wonderful advertising campaign for her book. So I think I'm pretty sure that it's going to be the value, the writing, and it's going, that's what's going to sell it. 
I do not see any diminution of memoir sales in this country. I'm getting them, I'm getting approached by publishers every day with huge lists of memoir to have on my podcast. And I think that really you've got to study the market and understand the territory, but then you've got to do the best writing you can possibly do to sell a book. Maybe it's also about the topic or the question, as you've mentioned, underlying the podcast. So I remember, was it back in the 90s? It was Ms. Mem, the misery memoir, where there was a lot of <laughs> like abused children uh, yes. type of memoirs. And then like you've mentioned Me Too and that I guess we're still in that moment. But there's also different themes that I guess come up when people tackle that in a memoir, perhaps Obviously, we're not going to write something to a market with memoir, but perhaps that also has an impact on whether publishers are interested. I think so. I mean, it's the job of a writer to understand what's coming in the ether. That's just true, right? Writers react. That's our, and that is the first piece of information I give to writers. Writers react. You are supposed to be reacting in essays, op-eds, long form essays and books reacting to what's going on in the world, what's in the ether. So the question was at the beginning of COVID, are we going to want to read books coming out of COVID? Are we going to want to read a COVID diary of someone else? Or are we going to leave this whole thing behind? Well, interestingly, yesterday, and this will this will this kind of time stamps this, but let's just say recently then the Pulitzer Prizes for Fiction went out in the United States and a book that is absolutely a bummer but is a wonderful bummer. The retelling of, of a Dickens story won the Pulitzer Prize. And it is positively and absolutely not a book that you don't have to work through, that it isn't just joyous. So that's interesting to me. In other words, the public's appetite for a bit of misery is still very rich and very accepting, even though we've all been through three years of misery. We didn't just emerge saying, I only want to read happy stuff. That's it. No more bummer. Well, so we have to respond, right? Writers respond and writers react. So think about what it is that we might be interested in at the time that you can get this book published to some degree, to some degree. It doesn't mean you write entirely to the market, but what will we be talking about? What will we be thinking about? And that, I think, is your greatest consideration in terms of the outside market. Then you've got to remember, and I say this to the writers I work with every day, you better love the work because there is no controlling the market. Things happen in the world. And suddenly, my I have so many friends who had books coming out in the spring of 2020 whose books never saw the light of day because COVID stopped the distribution of books. That does happen. So try to love the work every day because you don't know what the market will bear. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess circling right back to the beginning, it's well worth it to write a memoir. I mean, it's crazy. This has taken me longer than any of my other books. And yet it's shorter. And yet it just it feels like it was three, three years or more of my life. <laughs> and yet it's so worth it. So is that it doesn't really matter about the sales. It's a brilliant project to do anyway. I think it is. I think that the great writers of the world, the Virginia Woolf, the Zora Neale Thurston, the Emily Dickinson, the whoever you love, James Baldwin, Charles Dickens, they're the Amazon. And the, But we are the tributaries. We are contributing. We are definitely trickling into the conversation. So write, contribute to the conversation. We share our humanity in memoir. And it is absolutely life-affirming 
And I believe in it with all of my heart. Brilliant. So where can people find you and your books and courses and your podcast online? How kind of you to ask. I'm at marionroach.com. It's M-A-R-I-O-N-R-O-A-C-H.com. That's where the QWERTY podcast is housed. I run the transcripts of it. It's also everywhere podcasts are available and the books and everything else are available at marionroach.com. And it's just a joy to talk to you, Joanna. I'm just delighted. And the book is wonderful. So I hope you sell a billion copies of it. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time, Marion. That was great. You're welcome. Be well. Talk to you again soon. So I hope you found the discussion with Marion interesting, especially if you are considering writing your own memoir. I know how much work it is, but it is definitely worth it. And if you fancy trying my memoir, Pilgrimage, Lessons Learned from Solo Walking, Three Ancient Ways, you can buy it in all formats at creativepenbooks.com and also find it in the usual stores in most formats and I narrated the audiobook if that is your preferred format. So next week I'm talking about novel marketing and Christian publishing with Thomas Umstadt Jr who you might already listen to at the Novel Marketing Podcast and we have a lovely wide-ranging chat and, and definitely a bit of a laugh which I think you will find interesting. So in the meantime happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.